A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored, L'schus Ashidich for Riva Risha Basleya Fega, and in honor of the six generations of the family who have been in Pittsburgh, Kenai Nahara. And it is also dedicated in honor of the incredible work being done by the organization called My Extended Family, which is an organization providing resources and support to children from single-parent households with divisions in Muncie, Flatbush, Crown Heights, and the Five Towns. Please go to myef.org to learn more, to apply, donate, or to volunteer. And it's in memory of all those who sacrificed to build this Pittsburgh community, some of whom we will mention and discuss in this podcast and many others who we won't be able to get to. Um, I want to take this um, opportunity to mention that sponsorships are still available, both for the city episodes and for regular episodes. You can be in touch with me about that. Uh, With this city series, the Great American Jewish Cities, we've already covered Farakaway, Baltimore, Crown Heights, Chicago, Cincinnati, Washington Heights, and now Pittsburgh um, for tonight. And there's going to be more to come. There's in the coming episodes, and in, in no particular order, we're going to have, we have around the corner, we have Miami, we have the Lower East Side, we have Montreal, Houston, Seattle, LA, and many, many more to come. So if your city isn't in it yet, you don't want to be the only one not profiled. Let's get some city pride and reserve your city today. I want to. But when I start talking about Pittsburgh, I want to thank um, Ellie Nadoff, a very knowledgeable and uh, dedicated Jewish History Soundbites listener, and the incomparable Nachum Shmaryahu Zayans, and uh, several other dedicated and knowledgeable Jewish History Soundbites listeners for providing information and sources and, and helping me out, because... Today we're going to give the give uh, Pittsburgh uh, its 15 minutes in fame, and that phrase was co- coined by the uh, the famous Andy Warhol, and he grew up in Pittsburgh. So one of its native sons uh, 
made up the 15 minutes of fame. And here on this podcast, we're going to give more than 15 minutes to Warhol's hometown and uh, to get to know some of the uh, lesser known and more famous figures. Um, Pittsburgh is, of course, an old, old place. It starts off as in colonial times as a fur trading post. And if they were trading in furs, then we can imagine that there were probably Jews trading in furs. The French and Indian War, part of it was fought in the Pittsburgh area. George Washington, uh, as in his first military assignment in the French-Indian War, um, fought in that area. Later on, of course, Pittsburgh becomes a famous city as the center of the steel industry. Andrew Carnegie and the 1800s and the whole western Pennsylvania area is the center of, of steel. It's the city of steel and you know, the football team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's not, not because they steal as in S-T-E-A. It's, it's the steel because of the steel of the city. You know, I'll be honest, before I started looking into this, I didn't know much about Pittsburgh. I knew that the Pirates were there. And, you know, that means Roberto Clemente and Harvey Haddix's almost perfect game that didn't really count. And Honus Wagner and... And then Carnegie Mellon University. So that, that I, I knew the important things. And I didn't even realize um, how much rich and incredible, and a little bit, but the Jewish history there, which we're going to discuss today. But speaking of the pirates, the uh, one of the early owners was a Jew, a German-Jewish immigrant by the name of Barney Dreyfus. And he was the owner uh, of, uh, you know, he ran away from the German military draft mainly because he knew that he wouldn't be able to advance and become an officer in the German army because he was Jewish. And therefore, he decided to move to America and instead became the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates. So he did okay. And this Dreyfus fellow influences baseball till today. He, he um, you know, was able to make peace between the National League and the American League and, and mediate a uh, peace treaty between them and and he is essentially was the one who created the, the World Series as we know it. So you're talking about someone who tremendous influence on baseball. He owned the Pirates for over 30 years, which was a golden age for them. Honus Wagner was the one I mentioned. He brought him to the Pirates. And um, and if we continue of the theme of Jews in sports in Pittsburgh, so you had uh, on the Steelers in, the, in their football team, um, Randy Grossman won four Super Bowls in the 1970s, which is a record for any Jewish player. No other Jewish player has won that many Super Bowls. But if we get to the real Jewish history of, um, not that that's not real, but, you know, something uh, um, about the Jew- Jewish history, how it developed. So the Jewish community, of course, is, starts in the 1800s and what's by now a familiar uh, development. They first have uh, German Jewish immigrants more on the reform side, and only later on in the 1880s and 1890s, the great immigration, do the Jews from Eastern Europe. And in that context, it's interesting to note that the reform uh, Judaism's presence in, in Pittsburgh was very prominent. Um, and the first major uh, platform presented in reform Judaism took place in Pittsburgh. It was called the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885, which was a turning point in Reform Judaism in America. A fascinating document. Um, we discussed in Cincinnati in that episode, <coughs> excuse me, 
a couple of weeks ago about the Treif Banquet, which was in 1883. So you're talking about it's two years later, and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the now Reformed Judaism is developing, and they feel more comfortable becoming more radical because unity in the American Jewish community has already been abandoned. The founding of the seminary, which was the more traditional element in, in American Jewish society, is just around the corner. And here they present this platform, which was, which was establishing their independence not only of the traditional uh, faction of the American Jewish community, but also of the German uh, um, reform, uh, um, uh, reform Judaism, reform Jewish movement in Germany. And that's usually overlooked when people examine the Pittsburgh platform, is that they're looking at only as, as far as it, it's, uh, it's uh, declaring its independence, so to say, from traditional Judaism, where in, in the context of the time, it's also saying to the German uh, uh, establishment of Reform Judaism that we in America are our own, we're taking it our own way, and we have our own flavor to Reform Judaism. And in there they, um, they uh, renounce uh, many aspects of traditional Jewish life. It's a very radical document. They do away with a lot of basic halacha, like the, you know, uh, kashras and the dietary laws and lots of other halachas, which becomes, in their opinion, not relevant to the time. So that's the small stuff. What they really proclaim there is that we are no longer a Jewish nation or we are a religious community. And therefore, there's no, we have, we have no, uh, we understand Mashiach, the, mes- the messianic times as a, as in a very humanistic terms of brotherhood, but not in returning to Israel, not return making creating um, a besamikdash, not going back to the land of Israel, and they you know wipe that out of Jewish tradition, and they grapple with the Pittsburgh flat for many years later when the reform when Reform Judaism turns to Zionism in the mid twentieth century, they have to uh, distance themselves from the Pittsburgh platform. Um, and they also, you know, deny the belief in, in, uh, and they proclaim as an ideal to work with other religions towards social justice and stuff like that. So that's a very important, uh, you know, landmark event in, in the history of American Judaism. But we move along to around that same time, a drop later, one of the greatest uh, Talmud Chachamim who lived in America in the early years, early immigrant, was Ramesh Shimon Sivitz. He was probably one of the, the greatest Talmud to ever live in Pittsburgh, and he comes early on. He um, he came in the 1880s already to America. You're talking about someone who um, he learned in Tells uh, by Blazer Gordon in the early years of Tells. He had smicha from Rabbi Khan Inspector, the Kovner Rav, and he, uh, and he comes to the United States and um, he and he did a lot, and it's amazing because he was always very pessimistic about the situation in America, and he decried the lack of care for the development of religious Jewish life. And you'd think that someone like that would be just so pessimistic, then he probably would become bitter and 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 not able to accomplish. But the opposite was true. Despite his pessimistic attitude towards American Jewish life, he was able to accomplish a lot. He was one of the Leaders of the Agudas Harabonim, um, there was a three rabbi uh, panel who ran the whole Agudas Harabonim. He was on that 
He was one of the three Rabbanim. He was the rabbi of the whole region. He used to travel monthly to Ohio and West Virginia and visit all the surrounding Jewish communities to oversee Jewish life there. He was the main person who gave the hesped at the funeral of Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, RJJ, the chief rabbi of New York City. He was the main masped. Uh, that was his role. He opened the first Talmud, afternoon Talmud Torah in Pittsburgh, and he did everything he could to further Yiddishkeit and Jewish education. And he was the Rav there for over 50 years, for over half a century. Another Rav in the early years was Rav Aaron Ashinsky. And um, he was also the rabbi for many years in Pittsburgh. He even had a dispute with the Jewish community in Pittsburgh and left, and he went back to the East Coast. And then they sued him, and they and they brought forced him to come back, and a whole thing. But he so he he went back, and 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 things seemed to settle down there. And he died. He passed away in 1954. He was uh, one of the heads of the Mizrahi in America. He was a big Zionist. He built many of the communal institutions in Pittsburgh, including the hospital, the Montefiore Jewish Hospital. He. Um, and he also came early on, I'm talking about in the 1880s, and he was very active also in the Agudas Rabbonim, and as well as Ezra's Taira, raising money in America for uh, for um, rabbis who had been uh, displaced by World War One and the aftermath. Um, so he maintained that connection. And one of the people who is still with us and was born in Pittsburgh during those early years, may he live and be well, many more happy and healthy years, is Rabbi Yitzhak Shiner lives in Yerushalayim. He's the Rashiva of Kamenetz. So he's he's one of the G'dayle Hadar. He's the Rashiva in Kamenetz, a very, very, uh, you know, uh, you know, intense Yeshiva for, for what, you know, had, a, had seen better days, but it's still around. And he's married to Rebarch Berlebevich, the Kamenetz Rashiva's granddaughter, and he grew up in Pittsburgh. How does he end up becoming Rabbi Yitzhak Shiner? So it's an interesting story. There was a fellow by the name of Avram Bender, and he was a mishulach, a fundraiser for Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchak Chanan in the 1920s and 30s. Mr. Rabbi Bender is the grandfather of of uh, Rabbi Bender from Darchei the famous Rashiva Darchei And Mr. Avram Bender, uh, he was fundraising in Pittsburgh for Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchak Chanan for Ritz. And he stayed at the Shiner's house, at the Ritzik Shiner's parents' house. And he met this young boy, and he's out in Pittsburgh, and he says, you have to come back to the East Coast. There's yeshivas on the East Coast. You come there, I'll bring you. And he convinced him to come to learn in Taravadas, where he learned by Reb Shleima Hyman and, uh, and Reb Shraga Feivel Mendelovich and all the great people who were in Taravadas during the 1930s. And and until today, Rabbi Yitzchak Shiner credits Rabbi Avram Bender for saving him and for bringing him to yeshiva. And um, saving him means taking him out of Pittsburgh. Nothing to do with Pittsburgh, but just there was no yeshiva there then. In in, in any event, but uh, some people who were not saved in Pittsburgh, um, a, 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 a loyal and uh, dedicated listener of uh, Jewish History Summit told me that he heard from Rabbi Nata Greenblatt, that one of Rebleib Rubin's, Rebleib Vilkamir, Rebleib Rubin, is one of the famous uh, Rav in, in Lithuania. So he had, he was the father of the Panavizhar Rav. So his daughter married the Panavizhar Rav, one of his daughters. He had a son who left Yiddishkeit, and, and he lived in Pittsburgh. 
And Rabnata Greenblatt met him there, and he met him uh, met him later on in life, and he had returned to Yiddishkeit. This Rebbe Rubin's son became from again in Pittsburgh, and he was telling Rabnata Greenblatt his whole life story about how he had abandoned Yiddishkeit and his father uh, and his parents, you know. Wrote, wrote, you know, imagined that he would never come back, and here he comes back so many years later, and he said, he started to cry, and he says, what I did to my father, I could forgive myself and live with, because my father still had his Gemara, but what I did to my mother, I can never forgive, forgive myself, and that's how this old Litvak looked at it um, at the end of his life, on this, on the topic of uh, children of Gedele Yisrael, who left Yiddishkeit, and there's a happy ending in Pittsburgh, so there was another similar one, Rebbe Baruch Kamai, who was the great Mirror Rav and Rosh Hashiva, whose son of Ron Tzvi Kamai was the Mirror Rav and Rosh Hashiva, and his son-in-law was Rebbe Yudel Finkel. So he had another son, Rebbe Baruch Kamai, and this other son moved to America, left Yiddishkeit. He was very active in the Yiddishist socialist circles, basically like almost like communist circles in Detroit, completely left Yiddishkeit, and his name was became Komei, and eventually some of his descendants, children, grandchildren, lived in Pittsburgh and returned to Yiddishkeit and were, uh, were uh, religious and traditional Jews. So it seems like people come back to Yiddishkeit out in Pittsburgh. In any event, there was other very impressive Rabbonim who were there in those early days. Another one was actually Galitzianarov named Revolf Leiter, and he, this, this, this Rav was, grew up in Galicia, was a very, very close friend with Rameir Shapiro. He helped him when Rameir Shapiro was in, in, uh, in, uh, in America with his fundraising for Yeshiva's Chachme Lublin. They maintained the correspondence. They were very close. And this, um, and he was a tremendous, uh, this Revolf Leiter was a tremendous guy. He was a Paisic. He, a brilliant individual, knew many languages. He, picked up English easily, which most European rabbis did not do at the time. And of course, we like him here because he loved history. He loved world history, general history, and he had a special love for Jewish history. He read up on it a lot. He wrote his own memoirs to make a contribution to history, and he wrote quite quite a few sfarim, a very impressive individual. And during he was actually a Rav in Galicia, and during World War I, he uh, moved to Amsterdam to get away from the war, and uh, and he became the rabbi there of the immigrant community of 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 Ostjuden, of Eastern European Jews who lived in Amsterdam. While there, during the time of World War One, he wrote a short sefer on the role of women in a Tyra society, and advocated that they should have a formal education in today's day and age. And that was a you know a uh, groundbreaking book at the time. Um, you know, definitely even if people had such opinions, but they never actually published it out in a book form. And and then it goes along, of course, that some people, uh, there are those who say, which is you know very hard to prove, and I'm I, uh, not so sure, I, and I would take it with a grain of salt, but it sounds good anyway, uh, that it, there are those who say that it influenced the uh, uh, form, formation a couple of years later of the Beis Yaakov uh, girls' school movement. In any event, he um, in 1920, right after World War One, he comes to America. A couple of years later, he arrives in Pittsburgh, becomes the rabbi of the Machziki Hadas Shul, and he was very active both in local 
uh, infrastructure and organizations and nationally in rabbinic organizations. And he helped the fundraising for the yeshivas in Eastern Europe. Um, he was involved with lay organizations at the World Jewish Congress. He was involved with the Mizrahi. He was uh, prominent in the Mizrahi. He he opened the kosher kitchen in Montefiore Hospital. The Jewish patients need and their families need kosher food, and he maintained it. He oversaw it for decades. He was the chaplain in the local prison. In other words, he he uh, in every aspect of Jewish life he involved himself and. Um, and uh, he, he sent his son, actually, to learn in Lakewood by Rabbi Cutler, and that son is still alive. He lives in Yerushalayim. And, um, and, uh, and I think he was recently interviewed about his father. As it happens, Revolf Leiter's wife, Rebetzin Rifka Leiter, like I mentioned, the Revolf Leiter was involved in helping the yeshivas of Eastern Europe in the interwar period with their fundraising efforts. So his wife uh, led the... Ladies, I can never pronounce this word right. The ladies, auxiliary, auxiliary, whatever it is, it's a ladies group that got together to help fundraise. And we even have, at least on one occasion, that Rabaran Cutler, when he was still the Rashiva in Kletsk, he wrote a letter in Yiddish to the ladies of Pittsburgh who had formed this group to fundraise for, for, uh, for Kletsk. And he specifically addresses the Rebbits and Rifka lighter who does so much for the yeshiva. So they were involved in, in that end as well. Um, and there was a Polish Rav who ended up uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, who I mentioned actually when we spoke about the Warsaw Rabbinate, Rav Rambin Yaman Silverberg, who was descended from a long line of of Varsha, Warsaw rabbinic uh, family, and he wrote many Sfarim, uh, among them was on the Maral Tzins, or Bar Yileb Tzins, and Rebekiva Eger, which was like his ancestors, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, they all did that, and especially the Maral Tzins. Rav Ram Yom and Silberg, if anyone's familiar with the Maral Tzins' forum, um, which will become very popular today in Holzgula, that if you help print this forum, you get all kinds of goodies, and and um, he's the one who popularized it. Rav Ram Yom and Silberg, who was a very very big Talmud and very, very involved for many, many years to write this farm. So he did it while he was a, uh, in his later years, started in Warsaw, in his later years as a rabbi in Pittsburgh. And um, and it's something he dedicated his life to. His, he had a son, whose name was Rabbi Meyer Silverberg, who was killed in a plane crash in 1960 while he was still alive. He passed away two years later in 1962. And his great-grandchild, um, is today's very, very famous Rav Tzvi Meyer Silverberg, who's named after this, this son of, uh, of this. Uh, uh, Rav Tzvi Meyer today comes from that, that uh, family. It, um, if we move over to the, the Hasidim in Pittsburgh, so we have uh, one of the few American cities that actually has a Hasidic dynasty named for it is the Pittsburgh Rebbes. And how does that come to be? So first of all, you have to understand there's two 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 factors at play here. So there's a fellow named, named Rabbi Yosef Leifer, and he comes from the Nadvarna Hasidic dynasty. Now, the policy in Nadvarna, Nadvarna is a city in the Ukraine, and uh, related to all the um, Ukrainian Hasidists in that area, Hungarian. One of the most famous ones is Ramatullah of Nadvarna, who was a Reb. He, he was really famous in his own right. The reason he's more famous in the last few years is because he was the Rebbe of Reb Shaila of Karistir. So that upgrades him a bit also. So that was one of the, the, the lifers are all Nadvarnas. 
Now the policy in Advarna was that any time a father who's a Rebbe passes away, all his kids become Rebbes. That was a policy. In Eastern Europe, there was no shortage of towns and shtetls and cities, so they just set up shop. It gave more of an individualistic attention in the Hasidus. No one branch ever became large. So all the ones, you ch- and you also, an element of democracy. You got to choose which one of the kids you liked and you, got, and you, and you felt connected to and went to him. So it added a lot um, um, to, uh, to the Hasidus. And, um, and they didn't mind not having the big court and the big fame and the big prestige because they had a different ideal. That was the Nadvarna. So following that, so there's this Rabbi Yosef Leifer, who was a, from the Nadvarna dynasty, and he came, comes to America in the 1920s, one of the earlier Rebbes to come, and he settles down in Pittsburgh, and he opens a chutzr. He becomes a chesidish Rebbe in Pittsburgh, one of the first ones outside of New York City. Uh, later on, he has a few of his brothers move to America. One of them becomes the Cleveland Rebbe, and one of them becomes the Brighton Beach Rebbe in Brooklyn. Uh, long before the Russian immigration. Now, the idea that that we name Hasidic dynasties after American cities is completely 100% a pre-war phenomenon. There's no such thing as it happening in the post-war. And the reason for it is simple. In the post-war, this, the, the names from Eastern Europe became holy because they represent a lost world, a destroyed world, and a wiped out, decimated world. And anything that can remind us of that world is nostalgic. It becomes part of tradition. That's why the dress from that world was frozen in time as well in, uh, in Hasidic traditional life. There's a lot to say about that in general as well, the pre-war and post-war. So the idea that when the early Rebbes came to America, so some of them named their Hasidic dynasties after their American towns, the Boston Rebbe, the Pittsburgh Rebbe, and so on. And but in the post-war it never happened. So, uh, the, 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 but but Pittsburgh they got it in. So we have a Pittsburgh Hasidus. Now, the um, this he he this Pittsburgh Rebbe he didn't trust uh, America enough. He was okay for him to live there and become a Rebbe there, but it wasn't good enough for him to send it, for his kids to learn there. So he sent his sons to go learn in yeshivas back in Hungary. And they were there during the all three of his sons who he sent there were there during the war. Two of his sons got killed by the Nazis. One of them survived the camps, the everything, the whole process of the war. And as a service, talking about someone who is in America, who had grown, lived in America for, for quite a bit of time and was sent back to learn in, in, uh, in Europe. And he got married in Europe and he was in Chernovitz during the war and deported. And the whole thing, or almost got deported, didn't get deported. A whole story of how he miraculously survived, and he, uh, after his survival, um, which again is not so common for someone who lived in America to be also be a Holocaust survivor. I know of a few uh, stories like that, but that's for another time. And um, he comes back to America, and he he became a rabbi in Newark. And then later on, he joins his father in Pittsburgh. Rabbi Yosef Leifer, the Pittsburgh Rebbe, passes away after 40 years of being a Rebbe in Pittsburgh in 1966. His son of Ram Abba takes over. And four years later, he makes another revolutionary move. He's leaving Pittsburgh. He's going to Eretz Yisrael. And where is he setting up his court in Eretz Yisrael? Figures he can't do it in Yerushalayim because he's from Pittsburgh. He's got to be out of town. So he chooses one of the most secular cities 
small towns which developed over the time because of the new port that was built there, to Ashdod. Until today, that's where the Pittsburgh Hasidus is. It's the main place. There are shtibels in another few places in the world, but the main place where where it is, he he uh, passed on, uh, and it's since then, and it's his son who's currently the Rebbe, who um, who had stayed on in America and only came to Eretz Yisrael later. Another Hasidus that's very very active, not surprisingly at all, in um, in Pittsburgh, is Chabad. Lubavitch came on very early, and they were major uh, major presence there, and really revolutionized the Tyrechinich of the town. Um, first. The one who arrives first uh, is actually a fellow by the name of Mordechai Doiv Altain. And he comes in 1942, the Rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, sends him to go to Pittsburgh to open a, a yeshiva, a, a, a day school for, for elementary school age kids. And again, the 1940s, outside of New York, there's no Tyre Messiah yet, there's no... There's there's not much to work with, and he opens one. He opens one for the Hasidim, for the religious Jews in town. A year or two later, a fascinating individual by the name of Reb Shalom Posner, along with his wife, also an incredible individual, uh, they come in and they they uh, they um, t- take over this school, which becomes the Yeshivas Achi Tamimim, part of the Chavana. There was this Reb Shalom Posner. He grew up in Russia. He's a chassid of the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Lubavitch, and he had studied in the time Chetim Yeshiva by one of the most famous Chabad Chassidim, Reb Itchidir Masmid, who, by the way, Reb Desla learned with him at a period of time. Reb Itchidir Masmid is one of the most, uh, also an amazing individual. Also could go on about him. He was unfortunately killed by the Nazis in Riga during the, during the war. And this Reb Shalom Posner was one of the close students of Reb Itchidir Masmid. And he... Um, Moves to America. He leaves. He learns in Taimchetmiu, but he eventually leaves uh, Russia. He comes to the United States. He lives in Elizabeth, and then in Chicago, and then he comes to Pittsburgh. And he literally was a legendary educator, a builder. He was persistent. Again, the Friedrich Rebbe sent him from Chicago to Pittsburgh to build this yeshiva Sachetmiu, and he galvanized the community and very dedicated lay leadership. Who I'm going to try to get to also. Uh, in a few minutes, who backed him and and he fundraised by them, and he was a stubborn and persistent fundraiser. He wouldn't let go of of someone until they were on board, until they helped out. And there's all kinds of stories about how he was able to uh, convince people that the impossible was possible, and we're going to build a new building despite all the odds, and we're going to buy this property even though it seems like we can't buy this property. He literally did not give up. His vision was endless, and he um, and he was a real educator. I, I, uh, um, uh, he would he and he was one of the earliest ones to do what we now have as the or used to be. I don't know now with the with the pandemic it's less. But um, but um, used to be a familiar sight of of the mivtsayim of in the entrance to malls or in machane Yehudashuk or in airports. You have people uh, Hasidim, um Hasidim putting on tefillin. For anyone who would like to, so he used to do that. Rosh Hashanah did that in the 1950s. He would go around to store owners in Pittsburgh, in downtown, in the old Jewish neighborhoods, and try to help, convince them to put on tefillin and uh, and help them put on tefillin. And and uh, and he wouldn't let them go. And he'd be in a store giving it to the store owner. If a Jew would walk in as a customer, he would make him put on tefillin too. 
Now, as an educator, so, so uh, someone sent me before this a 46-page article, which was gold, about him. Amazing, amazing stories about this person who I'd never even heard of before I started preparing for the Pittsburgh podcast. So I went through the 46 pages, and I realized I would not be able to relate, uh, you know, even a fraction of what it says there. But one story stuck out, and uh, and, and it seems that there was this, he was the print, he taught for decades in the school, but he's also the principal. So it seems that there was this boy who was misbehaving. You know, he had a boy's school, he had a girl's school, he had, a, he had all his institutions. And he, and this Shalom Posner, this, this boy was sent to him. as He was misbehaving, his teacher couldn't handle it anymore and threw him out of class to go to the principal's office. He asked him, why were you thrown out of class? He said, I was making paper airplanes and throwing them all over the class. And even when the teacher told me to stop, I didn't stop, and the whole story. So Shalom Posner sits the boy down and says, how'd you make the uh, paper airplanes? Show me. And he starts folding it, and he says, wow, so you really know how to work with paper. He says, let me show you all kinds of other things that you can make with paper. And they sit down, and he sat with him for an hour, and he showed him how to make paper dolls or paper figurines, whatever it was. And, and they practiced with it, and he showed him how to do the folds. And he says, here, now you know how to make other things with paper. Now go back to class. And that was it. Not, not a, another word of discipline. Uh, just real love and understanding the child and giving him that time and channeling uh, his energies into uh, to other, other uh, areas. His wife was very involved as well. Was very, both of them, the couple, was very beloved figures in in um, in uh, in um, Pittsburgh, um, and um, there was a lot of a lot of askan, a lot of communal activists who helped him out, who helped the other rabbanim out. The Balsam family were big uh, activists in Pittsburgh history. Adolf Schoenbrunn, Harry Morris, other names. I'm not going to get into now because I want to get to some other uh, people. Another rabbi who was uh, ready in the post-war who arrives in Pittsburgh, another fascinating individual, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Pupko. And Pupko was the Chafetz Chaim's name, so I guess he's related there somehow. I wasn't able to figure that out. But what's important is he was born in in, in Eastern Europe, um, but he comes at a young age with his family to America. He's one of the earliest uh, students of Rav Salvechik at Yeshiva University in the, in the early 1940s, right, when he took over his father, and he gets smicha from Rav Salvechik from YU, and he comes in 1940, a year later, right after he gets the smicha, he comes and he takes over the Sharei Torah Shul in Pittsburgh. Now, Ramayish Shimon Sivitz, who I mentioned earlier, who had passed away in 1936, was the Rav in Sharei Torah, and it had remained, excuse me, somewhat vacant, and now he came to take it over, Rabbi Pupko. And he remains the rabbi there for over 60 years. Really longevity they have there, the rabbis in Pittsburgh. And he came from a huge rabbinic family, his ancestors, his father was a rabbi in Philadelphia, and his siblings were rabbi, and his descendants, his children, grandchildren, a big, huge rabbinic family. Now, he's a pioneer in the fact that in the 1950s, he becomes one of the earliest activists in America for Soviet Jewry, so much so that he actually visits so the Soviet Union in the 1950s, which no one did, almost, and um, and he even wrote a book in Yiddish in the shadow of the Kremlin um, during that time, and uh, becomes a spokesman for the needs of Soviet 
uh, Jewry. He's one of the founders of the of another day school um, in uh, in Pittsburgh, the Hill Academy, uh, along with a very dedicated group of lay activists who I'm going to get to in a second. He was a, a tremendous um, writer. He edited 38 volumes of the RCA sermon uh, journals. And he also edited the volumes in memory of Rabbi Revel and of Yitzhak Isaac Herzog and of Salvechik and others. He was very active in the RCA and, of course, in the in the Zionist uh, movement and um, left his imprint there. He passed away not that long ago. He was there for, like I said, over 60 years. Um, and one of his important uh, lay leaders was the two brothers of the Butler family, Abram and Donald. And they were a legendary family, very influential as donors and lay leaders um, in not only limited to Pittsburgh, but especially so. And they 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 very well connected politicians and Gedalia Yisrael and and uh, Abe and Sylvia Butler, as, along with Donald and Hansi Butler, were from the the uh, major activists in Pittsburgh Jewry during that time. For instance, Donald Butler was on the board of the OU since the 1950s and eventually becomes the senior vice president. He's involved in the OU for decades, president of the Paul H. Sedek Shul in Pittsburgh, and along with Rabbi Pupko founded the Hill Academy, which again, you had to be a big visionary. In the places outside of New York in the early days of the 1950s to found an Orthodox Torah day school was a courageous step. And it was something that was going against the tide. And he initiated, he spearheaded the effort, and it became very successful. He edited, edited the uh, This Week in Pittsburgh Journal, very, very uh, beloved by all because he embraced all the Jews of all stripes and all backgrounds in the uh, Pittsburgh Jewish community. He assisted and hosted many um, people who came to Pittsburgh for medical treatments. And he was very, very involved in a host of other uh, communal activities. Of course, his grandson is the legendary researcher and historian Menachem Butler, who, of course, is continuing his family legacy. And another one was, a fellow was earlier, was Abe Dunn. Abe Dunn, um, he was the one who hosted all the great rabbis who came uh, to visit Pittsburgh, like the Ponovizhirov. Um And he was very close to Ponovizhirov. He was one of his, one of his guys. And Herblazer Silver, he was an activist in the Vat Hatzalah and rescue activities during the war. And he was very involved in the development of the local schools, especially what I just mentioned, Shalom Posner of uh, Chabad. Um, and his son-in-law was another prominent Pittsburgh uh, Rav, Rabbi Yaman Nadoff, who grew up in Chicago and comes from a fascinating background. He came, his, came from a Yemenite and Iraqi background. And, uh, and, and, and with that Yemenite and Iraqi background, his father was both a silversmith and the rabbi of a shul in Chicago. And then he goes ahead and goes, learns in Tervidas and gets a rare smicha from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And then he ends up in Pittsburgh. And so you have, you have, and, and, and once we mention Pittsburgh, well, uh, there's another very, what was uh, a very prominent Jewish community, uh, nearby right at the center also of the steel industry, uh, McKeesport, which, I'll be honest, I don't think I ever heard of until I started looking into this. And the um, and 
uh, also there was an active Jewish community from the turn of the century. There was big rabbis who were there and um, quite a few shuls and a diverse community. Interestingly enough, one of the only uh, out-of-town um, communities, uh, Jewish communities in America that had a Hungarian Jewish majority. Most of the out-of-town places did not have a Hungarian Jewish majority, and somehow this one did. I don't have a great explanation for why. And one of the the legends of that community was Rabbi Yitzchak Chin, who was the rub there for over half a century in McKeesport, in the Gemilas Chesed Shul in McKeesport. And he also was a Tayyar Vidas graduate, very close to Rishraga Feivel Mendelovich. He was close to the Kloisenberger Rebbe when the Kloisenberger Rebbe survived the war and came to the United States. So there were a few boys from Tayyar Vidas who were, became very close with him. He was one of them. And he was a Talmud of Rebruven Grzovsky in Tayyar Vidas. And then he became very active on the American Jewish educational scene in camps, originally in Camp Masifta, Tayyar Vidas, but later in Camp Tayyar Vidas. Or Shraga, he was always a speaker at the Tairu Masaira Convention, the Aguda Convention. But what's interesting is that he married a Yerushalmi, actually a descendant of one of the great Yerushalmi rabbis, Reb Hirsch Michal Shapiro. And uh, he has a son, Reb Hirsch Michal Chen. And, um, and, uh, and uh, so, so he have his Yerushalmi marrying, uh, uh, marrying Reb Yitzhak Chin, and then we have this rabbinate in McKeesport, which was a big Jewish community, like I said. And he comes there in 1958. A couple of years later, President JFK arrived in McKeesport for some sort of rally, and and um, and the and Rabbi Chin brings his entire shul to go attend the rally and give honor and pay their respects to the president. What was interesting about it was is that the rally took place on the Yontif of Shmini Atzeres, and the rally took place at 10:30 in the morning. And he still went. They took a break after Shachris, before Musaf. He marched out with the whole shul. He says it's important that the that we go and honor the president and that the Jewish community is involved and active in paying their respects. So they left in the middle of davening and they went to uh, they went to see JFK. Um, another later on, if we move move over in in uh, Pittsburgh Jewish history, so you have in 1977 Rav Shol Kagan who is a Lakewood Talmud, of Baron Cutler, he founds a coil. So it's moving up a notch in Pittsburgh. Now there's a coil, and he runs it for uh, uh, over 20 years. And then if we move uh, into really recent Jewish history, and usually on this podcast I don't get involved in contemporary or recent, but something so significant of an event, like what happened in Pittsburgh two years ago, is not something that can be overlooked. And a very tragic terrorist attack in the, the shooting in the Tree of Life synagogue, which, which is one of the oldest shuls in, in, maybe in America. The original version of the shul started in 1864. And, um, and the, on October 27, 2018, a gunman comes in, 11 people are killed, and it remains, and hopefully will never uh, be, be something like anything close to that repeated, but it remains the deadliest terrorist attack against Jews in the history of the United States. A very, a terrible story, and uh, you know, a, a week after the shooting, the Pittsburgh uh, newspaper, also a historic moment in American history, publishes Hebrew letters as the headline of the newspaper Yiskadel v'Yiskadel Shmei Rabba. Um, interestingly enough, the very famous uh, New York Times columnist Barry Weiss, who 
grew up in Pittsburgh, attended the Tree of Life synagogue growing up, and she had her uh, bas mitzvah ceremony there. So you have that uh, connection as well. But I don't like ending off with a with a uh, on a sad and a tragic note of a, an attack like that. So just mention one other famous personality who lived for, in Pittsburgh for many years. We mentioned the Pittsburgher Rebbe, but there's also a quasi-branch of the harness stipel Hasidus because the famous psychiatrist and Hasid, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky, may you live and be well, uh, lived in Pittsburgh for well over 30 years. And, uh, and uh, you know, as a psychiatrist, you know, comes from Milwaukee, comes from the harness stipel Hasidus, and, and he had his gateway rehab center for addictions. And that's where he developed his whole philosophy, which, you know, he got he, someone who's almost, uh, it's hard to find someone who has, has accomplished as, as much as he's done, written over 60 books and the influence that he's had on people. An amazing person. But um, it's in Pittsburgh where he develops his whole philosophy about how addictions and the 12-step program to get off of addictions is very, very close to Judaism, to Yiddishkeit, to Musr, to spirituality, and he's written an enormous amount on that as well. So that's just a little bit of a taste of Jewish Pittsburgh. And um, uh, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. For questions, comments, sources, uh, tours and trips, and sponsorships, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.